0: Or its affiliates.
1: I spent the past year talking to some of the most decorated NBA players in the game. Their ages span six decades, from Kevin Durant, who's 33, to 93 year old Bob Cousy. And I've tried to ask each of them who is on your Mount Rushmore of NBA greats? Almost everyone includes the usual suspects Magic, Jordan, LeBron. But one of the answers surprised me. When I asked Julius Irving, Dr. J, he went old school on me.
2: I said, it's Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and it's Oscar Robertson and it's
1: Jerry West and it's Elgin Baylor. Wait, no MJ? Snubbing LeBron? You get to pick your team. And since it was when I was
2: 15 years old, those were the guys. They were the the mainstay of, of the day. And what they did, how they did it made an indelible impression on me forever.
1: They've made a pretty strong impression on me, too. Today's superstars would never enjoy lucrative contracts, global endorsement opportunities, or the platforms to make impactful social justice statements, if not for the founders of the NBA Icons Club. I'm Jackie McMullen From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. Episode 1, Wilt and Russell. In the 60s, Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain weren't the only stars. There was Jerry West, Mr. Clutch, whose silhouette is the NBA logo. And Elgin Baylor, an acrobatic scorer who helped the game take flight, and Oscar Robertson, who averaged a triple-double for a full season. No wonder Dr. J has reverence for each of them. But it was Russ and Wilt who had come to define this era and create the templates for the future faces of the NBA. Wilt was best known, of course, for his offense— the photo of Wilt holding a piece of paper declaring 100 remains one of the most enduring images in basketball lore. Kevin Durant says it best.
3: You hear somebody to score 100 points in a game, you, as a player, you never feel like that's attainable. As much as we got confidence in ourselves, 100 points is a lot of points to score in a regulation game.
1: Always in contrast to his chief rival, Russ was best known for his defense. Satch Sanders, his Celtic teammate, claims Russell so intimidated some of the top centers in the league, they actually retired after a couple of years of trying to score against him.
3: They would swing those mighty hook shots and Russell would grab them out of the air. Grab the ball out of the air, okay? Not just block the shot.
1: And of course, Russ was known for what all that defense led to. Here's Steve Kerr.
4: Bill Russell was The big guy who won championships, who dominated games.
1: And so it went. Wilk got the stats. Russ, the rings. Their careers existed in permanent conflict with one another. If one was celebrating, it was usually at the expense of the other. They spent their entire careers walking a fine line between a searing competitiveness and an intensely complicated camaraderie. The scrutiny was unrelenting, and they only had each other to talk about it. Nobody else could have possibly understood. While his ring count may pale in comparison, Wilt was the one who attracted the crowds. He was a giant of a man, standing seven foot one, the tallest in the league, but also muscular, stately, His mammoth hands were often described as catcher's mitts. While many mistakenly thought his nickname, the Big Dipper, was a nod to his gorgeous finger rolls, it was actually from his childhood. He learned to play basketball in a basement, but was so tall he had to dip his head under the pipe so he wouldn't smash his forehead. When he arrived in the NBA, Wilde's teammates were startled to see him touch the top of the backboard with ease. He was a dominant low-post player, but also had an impressive fadeaway jumper and a turnaround bank shot in his arsenal. Wilt averaged 37.6 points and 27 rebounds a game as a rookie in the 1959-60 season. For perspective, no other player in NBA history has ever averaged more than 22 rebounds in a season, except Bill Russell. In fact, between them, They hold the top 18 single-season rebounding titles of all time. Even today's stars can't quite believe it. Here's KD again.
3: It's just like hearing Zeus, you know? know, It's just that, that legend, that myth around those guys.
1: Will collected scoring, rebounding, and assist titles in the course of his career. An astounding athletic feat for a center. But Russell collected championships, a lot of them, 11 in 13 seasons, to be exact, making him the most decorated winner in sports. That distinction became the popular contrast between the two Titans. Wilt as the extraordinary individual talent versus Russell, the consummate team player. In the 61-62 season, Wilt averaged 50 points a game. But when the MVP votes were tallied, it was Russ, not Wilt, who won. The voters were not media members like today. It was the players who voted Russ as the best. Russell's career average was just over 15 points a game, but he dominated with his breathtaking shot-blocking abilities. Casey Jones, a longtime Celtics teammate, once told me Russ's shooting form was at best homely, particularly from eight feet and beyond. Legendary Celtics coach, Red Auerbach, mindful of Russell's pride, drew up a play called Six, Russell's number, designed to get him a basket. It involved players cutting and screening, and in spite of himself, Russ ended up hitting those cutters instead of shooting, later quipping, I was the third option on my own play. Russell didn't care about scoring. He was much more concerned with dominating the defensive end of the floor. Russell was not as physically imposing as Wilt, but was vastly underrated as a passer. He thought nothing of snaring the rebound and pushing the ball up the floor himself. He was deceptively quick for a man his size. His Celtics teammates shared stories of foot races in practice that often ended with Russell outpacing the team's point guards. Hall of Famer Lenny Wilkins, an all-star during that era, says that Wilt and Russell's approaches were just as different as their skill sets. Wilt. Hey, if, if he played well, that was fine with him, <laughs> you know?
5: I don't, I don't know that Wilt had the competitive instincts that Russell had, you know? I would say that Russell probably had more than that, more than Wilt,
1: but Wilt was flamboyant. While Russell preferred not to be bothered in public, Chamberlain embraced his celebrity donning oversized fur coats, and making grand entrances with a woman on each arm. In his 1991 book, A View From Above, the Big Dipper claimed he slept with more than 20,000 women. Wilkins says Wilt's personality was as outsized as his physique, as evidenced by his own nightclub in Harlem called Small's Paradise. He'd fly to New York after a game
5: from Philly, you know, just to be up there. but. They couldn't stop him, and they weren't going to try, you know, because, I mean, he showed up for every game. I mean, he was a specimen. You know, he was unlike anything you've ever seen. That size, that strong, and he would uh, compete every night.
1: Make no mistake, Russell wasn't above a little superstar treatment of his own from time to time. Because he logged so many minutes in games, Russell was content to sit on the sidelines during Red's arduous practices, sipping tea as his teammates grunted through their drills. That's right. Long before Greg Popovich rested his stars, Arback was practicing his own version of load management. And for the most part, Russell's teammates didn't object. With him sidelined, they didn't have to fret about him rejecting their jump shots. Yet very little else about Popovich's NBA resembled the basketball environment in which Wilt and Russell excelled. The comforts afforded today's superstars would have been unimaginable to them. These icons didn't fly on private jets with opulent post-game spreads, in-flight entertainment, and a swath of trainers, massage therapists, and team doctors at their disposal. They often traveled by train, and if they were due to play in Fort Wayne, they knew to pack lightly because they'd often have to trudge across a cornfield by foot to get to their hotel. Back then, players' rights were a mirage. There was no free agency, no player movement, no training staff to provide even the most basic health and safety needs. Players iced their own knees and taped their own ankles. Off-season summer workouts were conducted on steamy blacktops that over time, ravaged joints and shortened careers. The early NBA was a fledgling curiosity without much traction, financial backing, or cachet. While Drake, Spike Lee, Jay-Z, and Jack Nicholson are mainstays in today's NBA experience, there were no stars plunking themselves down at courtside seats hoping to be seen in the 60s. For one thing, most of the games weren't televised. Celtics point guard Bob Cousy, the league MVP in 1957, and the owner of the bodacious nickname, Houdini of the Hardwood, tells me there simply wasn't much fanfare regarding professional basketball in those days.
4: We were at the bottom of the sports totem pole, Jack. Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball in 1947, and it was international headlines. Three years later, Walla Brown, wonderful man, owner of the Celtics, got up at the meeting, uh, league meeting, and said, the Celtics draft Chuck Cooper from Duquesne. And Eddie Gottlieb, owner of Philadelphia, I'm told, got up and said, Walter, don't you know he's a Negro? And to Walter's credit, he said, I really don't give a shit whether he's polka-dotted. Arnold Albeck, who I just hired as my coach, tells me he can help us win, so we draft Chuck Cooper.
1: Cousy clarified, this wasn't so much a story about race as it was about relevance.
4: The point of the story is, to this day, Jackie, I have yet to read one story about the NBA's integration of the league. And, and the, the sorry fact is nobody gave a damn, okay? We were so Mickey Mouse that nobody cared what color we
1: were. Because of this obscurity, salaries were so minuscule that the majority of the top players were forced to secure off-season jobs. Kuzi ran a driving school and a summer basketball camp. Satch Sanders worked at a sporting goods store and later in a real estate office. Wilkins landed a marketing job. And then there was Rick Barry, the all-star MVP in 1967.
6: I sold season tickets before the season to try to make a few extra dollars.
1: Neither Wilt or Russell needed to generate off-season income. They were the faces of the league, and when the two of them squared off, there was guaranteed buzz. The average attendance at a Celtics game in 1963 was 7,455 fans unless Wilt was in town. And then the garden would fill to its capacity of over 14,000 paying customers. Russell was acutely aware of their rivalry and the jockeying for position for bragging rights. When Wilt negotiated a $100,000 contract, an extremely lavish sum in 1965, Russell went to the Celtics, flashed his rings and demanded $1 more. The two rivals shared the undeniable bond, and quite often the burden, of being highly visible black athletes whose stature made it impossible to blend into a crowd. They were asked to carry a teetering lead while also attempting to wrestle the championship trophy from one another. And they were vying for the mantle of the best player in the game. In spite of that tension, Wilt and Russell managed to maintain a relationship that was quite often very warm and very personal. Their parallel paths as basketball royalty provided them with a common thread. When the Celtics played the Philadelphia Warriors on Thanksgiving, Russell came into Philly the night before and slept in Wilt's bed. He claims he did that six years in a row. Listen to Wilt tell Bob Costas all about it in 1997.
6: I mean, he'd come past my house on Thanksgiving because we played Philly Boston all the time, sleep in my bed, eat the food, sleep in my bed, and go out there and whip my butt. You understand? And my mother would say, No, Wilt, we shouldn't feed Bill so well the next time. <laughs> 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 well, you know,
1: yeah, well. Indeed, many suspected that Russell employed art of war techniques to lull Wilt into a false sense of success. During the interview I did with Kobe Bryant in his final season, the one where he revealed the nature of his relationship with Michael Jordan, he shared with me a phone conversation he had with Bill Russell in the year 2000. Russell admitted to him that he would play Wilt tough while the game was in question, but would ease off once the game was in hand so Wilt could score and be satisfied with his numbers in defeat. Kobe claimed that Russell believed if he defended Wilt too tightly, he would take it as a challenge and would demolish Russell because he was so big and strong. So Russell could live with Wilt making the All-NBA First Team seven times, while he was only chosen on three occasions. So what if Wilt had seven scoring titles and Russell had none? The tally that mattered to him was championships, and in that category, Russell holds a commanding 11-2 advantage. Wilt never experienced the satisfaction of beating Russell and the Celtics in the finals. It was supposed to happen in 1969, when Wilt teamed with Jerry West in Los Angeles. The Lakers were favored, but Wilt injured his knee in the deciding game seven and limped to the bench. He never returned, despite imploring Lakers coach Butch Van Bredikoff late in the game to let him go back in. Austin won the championship again. Russell, among others, questioned the severity of Wilt's injury. Russ was furious that Wilt's absence down the stretch clouded the victory. It was, after all, the final game of Russell's illustrious career. In a speech at the University of Wisconsin later that year, he claimed that Wilt, quote, copped out of the game, and that any injury short of a broken leg or broken back isn't good enough. A wounded Wilt stopped talking to Russell for decades. Russell wrote in his memoir, Second Wind, Wilt's leaving was like a misspelled word at the end of a cherished book. My anger at him that night caused great friction between us. Wilt's reputation took a major hit after that series. Bill Walton, who developed a friendship with Chamberlain, says Wilt was misunderstood and should not be defined only by his ring count.
6: Wilt was a combination of Magic Johnson and and Santa Claus, where he just wanted to make people happy and have a great time. And if a fierce, fierce competitor, but, a, but just a super nice, friendly, inclusive, welcoming, warming guy.
1: It was much more than basketball that weighed on Russ and Wilt. Their legacy, their status as founding icons of the league, would also be defined by decisions they
0: made off the court. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong you need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com.
1: While Wilton Russell's exceptional basketball abilities made them famous, their influence extended beyond the court. Because of their stature, the black community looked to them for guidance and leadership during a time when racism rocked the country. Even though the NBA stars were predominantly black, professional basketball was hardly a haven for them. In the 60s, when discrimination was rampant, finding a restaurant that would serve a team of black athletes often turned out to be a futile and infuriating exercise, especially in the South and Midwest. In its infancy, the NBA was complicit with such indignities, limiting the number of African-American players per team to three and later four out of fear the paying public would find their team too black. Oscar Robertson recalls he and his black teammates were noted with an asterisk when hotel assignments were posted, so players were grouped with people of their own kind. Oscar knew all about such bigotry. When he played for the University of Cincinnati, where he set 14 NCAA records and led the country in scoring three straight years, he was barred from the team's road hotels and often had to bunk in college dormitories. Think about that. The best player in the country, forced to fend for himself in a hostile community far from home, while his own team shrugged as if to say, what can we do? Even though Wilt and Russ were the faces of the NBA, that did not spare them from the injustices black men faced. Russell dealt with frightening racially motivated incidents his entire life. Oscar says those experiences forever scarred and motivated him.
2: Everyone thought Bill was such such a nasty, arrogant type individual. I said, man, I can, I can imagine why he did the things he did, because I'm I'm not gonna go into all the things that, that people did to him while he was in this school, in this system and outside of Boston. And Bill did never let people forget all the things he went through. And people to this day don't know what
1: he went through. Satch Sanders was there for much of it. In 1961, when Sanders and Sam Jones were refused service in a hotel coffee shop in Lexington, Kentucky, where the Celtics were playing a preseason game, Russell galvanized the five black players on the team and notified Coach Red Arback they were boycotting the game and flying home to Boston. A day later, Russell told reporters. We've got to show our disapproval of this kind of treatment, or else the status quo will prevail. We have the same rights and privileges as anyone else and deserve to be treated accordingly. In 1963, when civil rights leader Medgar Evers was murdered in his driveway by a Ku Klux Klan member, an enraged Russell flew to Mississippi, and with the help of Evers' brother Charles, ran an integrated basketball camp on a local playground. That same year, he threw his support behind a Boston Public Schools boycott to protest de facto segregation. It was a highly sensitive topic in the city, and his position angered many, leading to insults, harassment, even vandalism. Russell finally retreated 14 miles out of the city to the suburb of Reading in search of a little peace and privacy. The man at the epicenter of the Celtics' dominance should have been the most celebrated man in town. But he remained a target because of the color of his skin and his willingness to speak out about injustice. And in 1963, an incident occurred that permanently tainted his relationship with the city of Boston. Let Satch explain.
3: Some nuts broke into his uh, home smeared the wall, smeared the bed with all kind of feces, and they did anything they wanted to do to his home.
1: Lenny Wilkins was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks in 1960 and bought a new house in the city. Immediately, four sale signs popped up on his street. Undeterred, he restained the cabinet so it would look just right for his new bride. But the shiny veneer of those cabinets soon lost their luster. We had a uh, a little
5: puppy, a collie. We we didn't live far from a grocery store, a supermarket. And, and so we walked there and left him in the backyard. When we came back, uh, the puppy was, you know, he was having fits and seizures, stuff like that. We took him to the vet.
1: He had been poisoned and, and he didn't make it. And we just couldn't believe it. Sanders recalls a trip to Los Angeles when he and Sam Jones went out to buy groceries. They were walking up Wilshire Boulevard when a slew of cop cars, sirens blaring, pulled up. Out jumped a handful of officers, guns drawn, pointed directly at them.
3: Two black guys went to the store. And we must have frightened folks in the neighborhood. So they called the cops and the cops came. And I never forgot. Five carloads of cops with guns pulled and spotlights and the whole thing, like we were raiders from some other country.
1: Players in the 60s had no cell phones to record these incidents. And if they chose to speak up, they didn't have a groundswell of support. In 2018, when conservative talk show host Laura Ingram advised LeBron James to, quote, shut up and dribble, the backlash was swift. Ingram's comments were immediately branded racially insensitive, and James vowed to continue to speak out on social justice. Russell never had 109 million Instagram followers behind him. While he was cherished within the Black community, the primarily white male press corps that chronicled his career often depicted him as surly, difficult, and ungrateful. And yet that did not deter him from doing what he felt was right. In 1967, heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali faced charges of draft dodging for refusing to serve in the Vietnam War. A group of prominent black leaders, football legend Jim Brown among them, called a summit in Cleveland to meet with Ali. Russell agreed to go and dialed up a young al cinder, then a star at UCLA, who would later change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Boxing promoter Bob Arum had a different motivation. He and one of his law partners had worked out a deal with the government to drop the charges against Ali if he performed boxing exhibitions for U.S. troops. Arum urged the black athletes who had gathered to persuade Ali to change his stance. And if they did, they would share some of the purse from Ali's subsequent fights. In the end, Russell, Alcindor, and the rest of the athletes at the Cleveland summit chose to support Ali's decision, not for a payday, but in solidarity for religious freedom and civil rights. The photo of the 11 men flanking Ali became a memorable symbol of Black athletes collaborating in a powerful show of unity. Russell's central role in that meeting reverberates decades later among his NBA brethren in part because collaboration among stars was rare in the 70s and 80s. Charles Barkley says nobody banded together on much of anything because it was viewed as consorting with the enemy.
6: Those guys wanted to help each other. I mean, you know, Kareem said, hey, Bill Russell called me and says, hey, we got this thing brewing. I mean, can you imagine? Kareem said he was like 20 years old. He gets a call from the great Bill Russell saying, hey, we need to meet and talk about this Ali thing. And then you see the photo, you got him and Jim Brown
1: all sitting around, and I'm like, man, can you imagine that? In 2016, Carmelo Anthony posted a rallying cry challenging his fellow athletes to step up and take charge after two separate police shootings of unarmed Black men. To drive home his point, he posted a photo of the Cleveland Summit. While Russell was active in social justice causes from the start, Wilt didn't become involved until later, when a historic tragedy prompted him to act. It was 1968, and the Celtics and Russell were in the midst of an unprecedented period of success. The Celtics had won nine titles in ten seasons, while Wilt had pocketed just one. The lopsided ledger made it difficult at times for the two legends to communicate. It was a year before their finals clash in which Russell questioned Wilt's toughness, but Wilt was already growing sensitive about unfavorable comparisons to his rival. And yet, on one spring day, the two united as brothers in an instant. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Russell and his Celtics were scheduled to play Wilt and the Sixers the next day in game one of the Eastern Division Finals in Philadelphia. Russell knew King well. He marched with him in Washington and had a front row seat for his stirring I Have a Dream speech. He was devastated. Wayne Embry, who played with the Celtics in 1968 and later became the first black executive in the NBA, remembers watching the news alongside Russell both of them fighting back tears.
3: I think most of us were very distraught and uh, there was anger, there was frustration, there was just all kinds of emotions going on when the news came on. We, uh, of course, watched the news and what was happening in other cities around the the country and uh, so there was fear as well. We weren't sure whether we were gonna play the game or not play the game and we weren't much of the mood to play because we're all mourning the, the, the tremendous loss to the country.
1: Ember recalls Russell saying that basketball was trivial in that moment. It was, he said, an opportunity to stand up for what was right.
3: His mood was not to play, and he called uh, called his adversary and. And our good friend, Wilt Chamberlain, to get what his mood was. And uh, if I recall correctly, Wilt was very adamant about not playing.
1: Russell called a team meeting at the Sheraton Hotel, where the Celtics were staying. The team voted not to play. But then Coach Red Arbeck arrived and said mayors from both Boston and Philadelphia felt if the two teams took the court, it would serve as a moment of respite and unity for the Black community since violent protests had already started erupting throughout the country. It was a weighty decision, and the brunt of it fell to Russ and Wilt. They were torn between honoring King and doing right by their employers, who beseeched them to continue playing to promote peace and also to avoid squandering a plum primetime television spot. Embry recalls the Celtics were both emotional and conflicted.
3: It was a very difficult decision, but memory of Dr. King, he was a nonviolent person and he advocated nonviolence. And watching what was going in the other cities, we thought we would honor his wish and try to keep peace.
1: After much discussion, the Celtics reversed their position and voted to play after all. Across the hall, 30 minutes before game time, Wilt also convened his team. Hal Greer, an African-American, was torn up by King's death and considered bowing out. But as game time approached, he felt it was too late to back out. When word from the mayors reached the locker room that, by playing, they could keep protesters off the streets, the Sixers voted 7-3 to play. Wilb voted no, but acquiesced to the wishes of his team. Russell talked about the decision to play so soon after Dr. King's death in an interview with Bill Simmons for NBA
0: TV. So, you're glad you had the game retrospect? It seems like it was the right idea. I don't know. Uh,
2: I don't know how I feel about that. We, We did what we thought was right at that time.
1: While Russell and Wilt ended up playing the day after Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, the NBA did postpone the next series of games. And during the five day hiatus, Both icons flew to Atlanta to King's funeral and marched to the Ebenezer Baptist Church alongside Jackie Robinson, Floyd Patterson, and Jim Brown. The cancellations were a major moment in NBA history, a nod to the wishes of the players whose voices were previously not heeded by the league. 52 years after the Celtics and Sixers convinced the NBA to pause their season to honor Martin Luther King the Milwaukee Bucks experienced their own watershed moment in the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Bucks players George Hill and Sterling Brown, with the full endorsement of superstar Giannis Antetokounmpo, convinced their team to boycott their playoff game against the Orlando Magic in protest of violence against Black lives. We'll talk far more about this in greater detail in later episodes, But the unprecedented collective protest, without first running it by Commissioner Adam Silver or Milwaukee Bucks ownership, drew tremendous attention to the power of today's athlete, along with placing a white hot spotlight on the Black Lives Matter movement. Brown gives a nod to the precedent that Wilt and Russell set back in 68.
2: Those two guys were, you know, pioneers for us in this space. They definitely, uh, you know, paved the way for sports-related things, but also off-the-court things. And um, you can't do nothing but respect their thoughts and their opinions when it comes to certain things, especially social justice.
1: Oscar remembers the aftermath of Dr. King's assassination well. He had long admired Russell from afar— but got a closer look at his ideology when he played alongside him during a Goodwill overseas tour in the summer of 1964. Russell shared stories of his own experiences with racism and why it inspired him to keep pushing for black rights. Modern NBA athletes should credit Russ for helping the league become a place where players are celebrated for speaking their minds. In fact, last September, current Celtic star Jalen Brown saluted Russell on social media, declaring, because of you, It's okay to be an activist and an athlete. But the first star who followed in Russell's footsteps was Oscar Robertson. Oscar's own stand became the impetus for free agency. Let me explain. In the early days of the NBA, contracts had an option clause, which bound players to their teams until the franchise decided to end the relationship, either by trading or selling the rights to a given player. In essence, owners treated their rosters like property, not people. So in 1970, the players filed an antitrust class action lawsuit against the league to eradicate the option clause. And Oscar served as the lead plaintiff, Robertson versus the National Basketball Association. Not surprisingly, this did not sit well with the powers that be from the commissioner on down. Oscar's willingness to risk his legacy to fight for his fellow players left owners steaming. It took six years, but finally a settlement, known as the Oscar-Robertson Rule, paved the way for free agency, one of the most significant moments in NBA history. Finally, players had a choice in determining their future. Free agency helped the game become more popular which created a financial bonanza for players, coaches, and general managers. Average players' salaries were $35,000 in the mid-70s. Today, they are at $8.8 million a year. Yet none of that good fortune ever came Oscar's way. Upon his retirement, even after 12 all-star appearances, winning a championship and an MVP award, no NBA team offered him a job. He was, insist his peers, blackballed for costing the owners millions in free agent dollars. So I asked Oscar, does he believe he paid a price for his stance? Well,
2: yes I do. Uh, I, feel, I feel that a lot of things that a lot of other ballplayers during those days are, are receiving, and I, I won't tell you who told me this, but I was told that, that uh, certain things I would never get regarding the NBA. But so, you know, you live with it. That's that's the way it is, that's the way it has to be. So I'm happy that I was able to do what I did for the players and for the NBA. And I really think, Jackie, that what we did with the Oscar Robson rule made basketball a much better game. Look at the monies that's involved. The Clippers sold for $2 billion.
1: While contemporaries like Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, and Wayne Embry ended up coaching and running front offices, Oscar couldn't get work in the league and had to find other ways to make a living. Oscar's actions still resonate among today's stars. When Chris Paul became president of the union, he consulted Oscar on how he should best represent the players. When Paul and others decided to fund health insurance for all retired players, Oscar was one of their conduits. So too was Bill Russell who happily fielded phone calls from the likes of Dr. J, Shaq, Kobe, and LeBron as they paved their own path towards membership in the NBA Icons Club. And sometimes, he was even the one who picked up the phone. In 1987, the Detroit Pistons were about to steal Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals on the famed Celtics parquet floor. When Larry Bird intercepted an Isaiah Thomas inbound pass, and fed it to Dennis Johnson for a layup. It was a colossal blunder that ultimately cost the Pistons the series. It was, says Isaiah, the lowest point of his career at the time.
3: I was crushed. I really was was heartbroken. Uh, my spirits were down also as, as a player, as a person, and didn't want to get up, didn't want to go to practice, didn't want to see anybody. You know, just really embarrassed and ashamed
1: it wasn't his close friend, Magic Johnson, who called to coax Isaiah out of his misery. Instead, Thomas heard from a surprising ally.
3: I remember you know, my wife answering the phone, and you know, I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody. And she was like, no, I really think you should take this call. And she handed me the phone. She goes, you need to take this call. So I get on the phone, and it's Phil Russell. And he said, hey, you got to get back on the horse. You got to keep pushing, young man. You know, good luck to you. You didn't get a chance to talk back. It was just, you know, that was the message. And then he just kind of hung up the phone.
1: This was one of the perks of being in the club. Support from those who had been there before, regardless of the uniform you were wearing. Only the club members understand the pressure of carrying a team and the fallout when you falter. Shaquille O'Neal didn't win his first championship until he was in his seventh NBA season. As the scrutiny mounted, he craved feedback from the former greats. And Russell delivered.
2: I mean, the first time talking to Mr. Russell was three hours, and it wasn't about basketball. It was just about old legendary stories about him. And then he would call me every now and then and be like, hey man, don't go to the middle, drop step. You know, you go to the middle and, you know, the double's coming from the top. If you drop that, it's going to be wide open. I'm like, thank you.
1: Walton says that Wilt first reached out to him when he was a high school player in San Diego. Walton was a shy kid who struggled mightily with a stuttering problem. His high school team was playing before a San Diego Rockets game, and the Lakers, the Rockets' opponent that night, were watching.
6: I'm 16 years old. And as I'm walking off the court, got my head down, shy as can be. And I know the Lakers are right there, but I can't look up because I'm so shy and I can't speak or anything. And all of a sudden, as I'm walking off the court, this big black arm just stops me dead in my tracks and I look up and it's Wilt and he's standing, there. you know, the game's still half an hour away. He's coming on the court to warm up and he's already just dripping wet in this massive, huge figure. And he looks down at me, he said, Billy, that was a great game and we'll see you up here in the NBA really soon. And it just, I just filled up with this pride and joy and exuberance and opportunity that Wilt was giving to me.
1: Walton was there to witness the moment Russell and Wilt finally made peace with one another. Over the years, mutual friends attempted to break the ice. But the Frost finally thawed in 1993, some 24 years after their finals meeting, when Wilt and Russ filmed a Reebok commercial with Walton, Kareem, and Shaq. It was a playful ad featuring a young, slim Shaq, who was only in his second year in the NBA, but already oozing superstar potential. Shaq knocks on an invisible door, and Russell opens the slit in the middle to demand a password.
3: Password. Don't fake the funk
1: on a nasty dunk. ID. When Shaq finally enters, dare we say the big man's icon club? Wiltz, Walton, and Kareem are waiting. Shaq lays down a monster dunk that shatters the backboard. He turns to his elders, flashing his trademark grin, awaiting some plaudits and an invitation into their inner circle. Instead, the legends hand him a dustbin and a broom. Even icons have to earn their keep. The commercial took days to shoot, and over that time, Russell and Wilt rediscovered Common Ground. Walton says it was Wilt who set the mood and softened the tension.
6: So they had this commercial, and we're doing it all day, and it was just super fun and enjoyable, and, and but also grateful to Wilt for having the, the magnanimous personality to be able to bring everybody together and not just have it be an out-of-control ego fest where people are just angry and bitter and complaining that they don't have more.
1: Russell and Wilt soon fell back into their familiar banter. Every time Wilt told another outrageous tall tale about his playboy life, he would elicit another one of Russell's trademark cackles. (laughs) They developed a habit of referring to each other by their middle names, Felton for Russ, and Norman for Wilt, and talked regularly by phone. After so many years of battling each other, the two icons finally settled into a congenial friendship in which they reminisced about their influence on the game and on each other. They also delighted in cashing in on their celebrity after years of $8 a day per diem on the road. They had become two of the most significant and memorable members of the NBA Icons Club. Some five decades after they roamed the court, they still serve as towering symbols. They are the OGs of the game, who planted seeds of social justice, athletic excellence, and an aura of celebrity, so the players who followed them could benefit from learning about their experiences, both the euphoric and the horrific. On October 12, 1999, Wilt Chamberlain died suddenly of congestive heart failure. A shattered Russell declared in his eulogy I've lost a dear and exceptional friend and an important part of my life. Long before Wilt had passed, when the twin pillars of the Icons Club were building a fraternity for elite players who would succeed them, Bill Russell confided in his friend, you are the only person who understands how I feel. One Icon who followed Wilt and Russell into the esteemed club decided the burden of being the best shouldn't be so solitary. So Dr. J... Who was once told as a 19-year-old college student by Bill Russell, if you ever need anything, just call, determined his legacy would be to share the wealth, just as Russell before him had done. One of the recipients of Dr. J's wisdom, maybe you've heard of him. His name is Michael Jordan.
2: When I met Dr. J, Dr. J was such a classy guy. You know, I knew of his basketball and the creativity that it had, but the the the... The business applement that, that he had was unbelievable. And his advice was, hey, you know, just be who you are, you know, learn while you're you're basically in school, you know, so you're learning the business of of, of basketball.
1: That's next time on NBA Icons. This is the Icons Club. The Evolution of the NBA Superstar. I wrote and reported this podcast. Story editing by Justin Verrier. The show was executive produced by Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. Our producers are Bobby Wagner, Noah Malalay, Jonathan Kerma, Isaac Lee, Justin Verrier, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. The theme music was composed by Devin Rinaldo. The rest of the music in this series is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Jack McCluskey and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening.
0: Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.